Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Numbers. <clears throat> this being <clears throat> Mother's Day, what I thought I would do is to draw attention to some interesting women in the Scripture and what we can learn from them regarding faith and how they exemplify it, how they exercise it. The first uh, women that I'd like to draw your attention to is found in Numbers chapter 27, sort of an obscure passage here in the Torah, here in the book of Numbers. But it says in verse 1, the daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh. You would think that this is about the women. They're talking about the daughters, but we're reading about all these men right now, aren't we? They belong to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. And the names of the daughters were Machla, Noah, Hagla, Milka, Tirzah. They approached the entrance to the tent of meeting and stood before Moses, Eliezer the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly. Now, first of all here, I just want you to say, I want to talk about faith. And these five women, we don't know their ages, we don't know a lot about them, we don't know much about their family. But they do articulate that when they come before Moses and Eliezer and the elders of Israel, the leaders of Israel in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, before all the tribes that are gathered around, before all who would be present at that meeting, they point out that their father has died. He died in the wilderness. Remember, the book of Numbers is sort of the journey through the desert region, the Sinai into the promised land. They're at the tail end of that journey. And they remind Moses that their father had died in the wilderness. But they're very cautious to add, but not with respect to the rebellion of Korah, which led to the deaths of many Israelites because of their faithful, faithlessness. This man was a man of faith. This man was not a man who experienced the judgment of God. So these daughters of his are coming from a household where there is genuine faith evident. It's very important that we realize there is a difference between being religious and being people of faith. Although people use that phrase interchangeably. There's a difference between observing traditions, although traditions are important, beneficial, helpful, desirable, 
and they can enhance our worship of God, but there's a difference between the mere observance of surface kinds of things and an internal reality of, re- of a relationship with the living God. These daughters, it would appear, had that kind of relationship. And they apparently receive that kind of relationship because of the model that their father and perhaps mother had provided for them. What amazes me here about these women with regard to their faith is their sense of determination to speak truth to Moses. This is Moses, the leader of Israel. Moses is, how old is he at this time? 100, 120, he's going to die at 140. So we know that he's at the tail end of this wilderness wandering of 40 years. So he's toward the tail end of his life. He is a patriarch of sorts. He's the leader of Israel. He is the receiver of the Ten Commandments, the law and the tablets of stone. He's the one who is up on Mount Sinai, who had to cover his face because of the glory of God that had uh, sort of attached itself to him. As he's in the presence of God, when he leaves, he still manifests much of the presence of God that he saw or that he experienced. And these four daughters, consider this, these four women. There's not a whole lot about women in the law as such. Women certainly had a, how do I put this, subservient role, relationship to the men of Israel. This is unique that these women would stand up before the leaders of Israel and before the whole house of Israel to make their case. They make their case because they have a genuine relationship with the living God. And they understand the law better than perhaps most Israelites had understood it and perhaps most Jewish people today understand it. The very thing that these women draw Moses' and their leader's attention to is the very thing Yeshua draws our attention to and the Jewish leaders and Jewish people of his day to when he presents the Sermon on the Mount. For in the Sermon on the Mount, six times he will say, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And the very first thing he will say is, you have heard it said that thou shalt not kill. He quotes the law. When he says you've heard it said, Some have said that refers to rabbinical understanding, but it's not necessarily the case. Sometimes that phrase is used with regard to the reading of the law, which would have been read in the synagogue every week. You've heard it said, heard it read, heard it proclaimed. So it may not be about rabbinic tradition that Messiah is speaking to, but with regard to the very law itself. But we do know, and we ourselves are prone to do this, we are prone to sort of pat ourselves on the back for doing and being observant and obedient to God's ways. And so we pride ourselves in that if there are any commandments we've not broken, certainly we've not broken that one, or most of us. I'm not going to take a hand count how many have broken it literally and have paid the price hands down. But I dare say none of us, most of us here, have not taken a life maybe in war or something like that, but have not murdered someone. Although I realize there are exceptions that prove the rule. Jag is sort of looking at me, you know. No, he's not. I'm just saying that. 
But Yeshua tells us we ought not to be so proud of ourselves if we've not taken a human life. Because if we have hated someone, and some texts and very good manuscripts say, hated someone without a cause. Many of us might say, I don't think I've ever really hated someone. Others would pride ourselves. You know, I really hate that guy or that gal. There are things to hate, to be sure. Unrighteousness should be hated. Mistreatment and victimization of others should be hated, to be sure. But the point Yeshua is making, it's not enough to just say, I've not taken a life. If we've been angry with someone, hateful towards someone, he even says, call people names so as to destroy or harm their character. He talks about two words in that text. He says, saying raka and saying thou fool. The word raka is a reference to speaking about someone's ability to think well about something. In other words, saying, what a stupid person. That's how we say it in Jersey. What a stupid person. <laughs> Just sort of happens, you know, sorry. You can see I've practiced that very often. What a stupid thing. But when we say that, we're breaking the law of thou shalt not kill because we just killed that person's character with regard to our assessment of how we think that person thinks or reasons about things. When we say thou fool, we're talking about his character. What an idiot. We've said things like that, haven't we? But you see, most people pride themselves, I've not killed anyone. Now, what these women are saying is just what Messiah is saying. The law does not make provision, or does it, for a man who dies and has no sons to leave the inheritance to. The law doesn't say anything about that. It only says that if a man dies, his inheritance goes to his eldest son and to the next son and to the next son and then to his brother and down the line. And these four, five daughters are saying, well, what about the women among us? What about us? And what about my father whose name will be erased, whose inheritance will be lost? Doesn't the law, isn't the law just? Isn't it? Honorable? Isn't it fair? So they bring this before Moses. You've got to admire this, no? I mean, we think of faith as having to move mountains. Well, it takes a lot to stand up to the leader of Israel and the elders and the people of Israel. That's a mountain that has been moved so that these women, young women perhaps, can stand before them and plead their case. That takes an incredible amount of faith and trust and determination. And they do just that. Now, Moses is a very smart man. Now, there were times when he wasn't so smart. When God said, I want you to go to Pharaoh, he says, you've got the wrong guy. Not a very smart thing to say to God because God says, oh, I really do have the right guy. <laughs> you know, he's not going to go, oh, I'm going to get him to go. You know, <laughs> that's how I think anyway. <laughs> but there were times when Moses was rather foolish. But he learned over time, and here he shines brightly. Because when they ask him, what about our father? What about his inheritance that will be lost? Moses' first response is, let me pray about it. 
<laughs> Let me think about this one. Let me go before the Lord and ask his guidance rather than a quick response. Rather than say, what do you think about this? And boom, here it is. Now Moses says, no, no, I've got to think. I've got to reflect. I've got to give this some time. And then most of all, I've got to hear from God. And what's amazing is how God responds. And it says, so Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord says, what Zelophad's daughters are saying is right. Wow. You know, there isn't anything in the law that gives provision for the women, but you know, they should have it. They're right. You almost think, you know, God said, maybe I should change that. <laughs> this here. No, that wouldn't be. But the point is, just like the law says thou shalt not murder, but means much more. Though the law does not stipulate land going to daughters, it intended for that to be understood. Because they understood it. They said, God is a fair God. God is a just God. Our father's memory cannot be erased. His inheritance cannot be lost. So what's the alternative? The daughters should get the property. And God says, that's right. They understand it completely. And so often we misunderstand the law because we're satisfied with the bare surface meaning of it. Indeed, we should not take the life of a human being, but we should not hate others who are also created in the image of God. Remember, they're created by God. We're hating that which God had made. We ought not to deprecate that which God has made. We ought not seek to destroy the character of others whom God has made. And we ought to realize that the character that we have is in need of great renovation for all of us. We're all being conformed into the image of his son. And whatever we say about others can equally say, be said about ourselves. Sometimes we are extremely harsh in our criticism of others. But do not welcome the reciprocation of such harshness, even when deserving, with, rega with regard to our own failures and shortcomings. Like I said, Yeshua said, before you take out the speck of dust in your brother's eye, be mindful of the two-by-four that is in your own eye. And as I said, I remember years ago, a pastor speaking about that passage, and he said, whenever I come to this passage, and really, whenever I'm about to criti critique or criticize another, I have to, re I, I try to visualize Yeshua dressed in his carpentry, you know, carpenter's uh, get up, overalls, all of that he'd imagine, and he had the two by four on his shoulder, you know, carrying it, and he said, just remember this, you know. We don't always remember it. But it would be good to. And so these women, they see through it all. And they understood the truth of God's word. Faith expresses itself in determination for the right things of God. Faith expresses determination based on the truths and right understanding of God's word. We think of faith of others as other things, but it certainly involves understanding the word of God and standing upon it. It's like Yeshua will say in the Sermon on the Mount, he who builds his house on sand, it will crumble. He's talking not about building houses, although many of us would like to. 
He's talking about building a life. And if you want your life to stand the trials of life, you need to build it on a firm foundation, which is a rock. That is Messiah. And understanding his word rightly and applying it diligently. When we have that, like these women did, you can have a sense of determination to seek the rightness of God. And while it does not guarantee that it will always be seen, it does guarantee God sees it, and God approves it, and God comes to their aid. These are brave women, I think, and marvelous in terms of their understanding of God's word and their standing firmly upon it. Let me share with you another <clears throat> another woman from which we can learn some great things. Turn to the book of Judges. They're fairly obscure. This woman is not as obscure, but this is a prophetess. Now, I've always thought of her as a judge, which indeed she was, but had not really thought of her as a prophet. And yet she was a prophet of God. And so it says in Judges chapter 4, Deborah, a prophetess, The wife of Lapidoth was leading Israel. She's a judge at that time. She had court, court, under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, not far from Jerusalem, in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. Isn't that kind of cool? This woman is the one who is deciding disputes that people have among themselves. And she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord God of Israel, get this, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. The Lord says, I will lure Sisera. Look at the providence of God. I'm going to lure Sisera, the commander of Yabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Now, if God spoke to us that way, we say, we will rise up and we will do as God has said. Again, I think of Moses. The Lord says, go back to Pharaoh. And he says, you have the wrong man. Not exactly happy about the calling God has called him to. When you think of the disciples at the end of the life of Messiah, during, at his resurrection, I think something like eight times in the, in the account, it says, go to Galilee. Messiah will meet you there. And they don't get there for two weeks. They stay hunkered down in Jerusalem. Every time the angel reveals to them, he says, go to Galilee. That's where Messiah will see you. But the two are on the road to Emmaus, which is west of Jerusalem. Not quite in the right direction, north. And the other disciples, they're hunkered down in Jerusalem. 
The greatness of God is seen in his grace. He appears to them in Jerusalem. Okay, you guys are not going to go to Galilee. I'll meet you in the upper room. He appears to Thomas. Put your hands on my side and my, and, and in my hands and see that they're pierced. And he, he comes where they are. He even goes to the two on the road to Emmaus. He never even says to them, didn't those guys, didn't the angels tell you to go to Galilee? You're going the wrong way. No, he just walks with them, eats with them, reveals himself to them, and then he disappears on them. And where do they go? To Galilee? No, they go back to Jerusalem. Eventually, they make it to Galilee, but it takes a little time. And that's what Barak is like. Deborah has told him, go get 10,000 men from Zebulun and Naphtali, not exactly the military stronghold of the Jewish people. If you wanted to get troops, you take them from Judah. Now, that makes sense. But no, we're going to take the guys that are up in the hills, in the mountains. <laughs> sort of like the tree, green tree people over here in L.A. I don't, I don't know what they are. You know what I'm talking about? Over by, um, what is it, Mulholland or whatever? The tree or something, people? I don't know. I, just, I think of them as the hippie types. They're hanging out in there. Naphtali and Zebulun, they're all up in the north in the hill country. You know, and he's got to get 10,000 of these guys to go into battle against Sisera's army. And he's got 900 chariots alone. And he tells them, and Deborah tells Barak, take the guys. Where does he tell them to take them? Take them up to Mount Tabor. Like, that's a good idea. Once you get up on the mountain, the chariots just surround the hill and they just wait you out until you have to come down for supplies. So Barak's thinking... I know Deborah's a prophetess. I know that she's a judge. But did she really get this one right? So he says, I'm not going to go unless you come with me. And we've all been there, right? I'll do this, but you have to, you have to come alongside of me. And I think it's really interesting, right? Here's this woman. I'm not going unless you come with me. And she says, okay, but there's a consequence. So this is kind of interesting, too, about faith, isn't it? When we don't do what God calls us to do in the way that he tells us to do it and how he tells us and when, know that there are consequences for our lack of faith. And so she tells him, okay, you can do it your way, <laughs> you know, sort of God's way, sort of your way, but the honor will not go to you. The honor of taking Sisera is going to go to a woman, somebody else. So here are these two women that stand tall in this narrative. And so Deborah has Barak, and Barak takes the troops up the Mount Tabor, one of the entrance passageways into the Jezreel Valley in the open area. Of course, the 900 iron chariots that the Canaanites have are a great advantage in the open plain. They can't take them up the hill but they can wait them out and force them to come down. But things, the circumstances change. God is in full control. He leads them to the Kishon River, brings them toward Tabor, and what does God do? Well, we don't know in chapter 4, but in chapter 5, Deborah's song of praise tells us what God did. And he causes it to rain. And as it rains, the Kishon overflows... So the troops that are brought to the Kishon are camped there. Their escape route is cut off. 
And the troops that are at the base of Mount Tabor, their chariots become useless because they're not easily used in muddy, wet, grassy ground. And so Deborah says to Barak, the battle is yours, Barak. Get your troops down and send them on their way. So Barak charges, routs the enemy as they run from the scene of battle. And Sisera, who's looking to escape, makes his way out from the Jezreel Valley. And he comes upon a tent in which we have Yael. Now, if you look at chapter 4, verse 11, Yael, she's not introduced to us, but her husband is. It was all these male stuff, but the narrative is all about these women of faith. So in verse 11, it says, Now Heber the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and he pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanaim near Kadesh. And then the narrative goes on. So when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he gathered 900 chariots and all of his men. It's like, why is verse 11 even in there? What's the importance of this guy? We don't know anything about him. We know one thing. He was related to Moses' brother-in-law. Isn't that what it says? It says that, or he was Moses' brother-in-law. He was a descendant of Hobab. Hobab was Moses' brother-in-law. So here's a man who's a Kenite, but he's separated from the other Kenites. He's obviously somewhat identifying with the Israelites because he's related to Moses' brother-in-law. Did you know Moses had a brother-in-law? It's like this passage is where it's told right? Because he married Zipporah, and then he married the Cushite woman. So this is one of his wives' brothers, Moses. So now when the battle takes place, Sisera, verse 17, he flees from the battlefield on foot. He comes to the tent of Yael. Well, who is that? Ah, there's the guy, the wife of Heber the Kenite, who is mentioned in verse 11. Now there should be a connection that should come up. Because they were, there were friendly relations between Job and king of Hatzor and the clan of Heber the Kenite. So Sisera goes here because the clan from which Heber is related as a Kenite is related to Jabin, who is like the king of the Canaanites, for whom Sisera is the general. Everybody following that? Sisera is the general. His leader is Jabin. Jabin sends Sisera out. So when Sisera runs from the battlefield, he comes to Yael's tent, actually Heber's tent, the husband of Yael. And her husband, as a Kenite, is related to Jabin, the head of the Canaanites. So he figures, this guy's going to save me, because he's related to him. But he's also related to Moses. And it just so happens, the one who is at the tent of the doorway of the tent is not Heber. It's Yael. Yael has no consideration for the Canaanites. She, you know, she has no love lost there. So when she greets him, she says, come on in the tent and, you know, take some rest. Must have been heat of battle and running and carrying stuff. She says, he asks her for water. She gives him milk. So is the milk like warm milk? And so did it help him like fall asleep a little bit? You know, like Ovaltine at night kind of a thing? And, and so he's sort of like relaxing. He feels safe and he's there hid. 
And in the midst of that, Yael creeps up slowly and takes a tent peg, you know, these pegs that hold up these lines that are holding up these goatskin tents. I mean, these are big things. And with a hammer, she just drives it through his skull. Later, when, uh, when Barak and his men come, it says, verse 21, Yael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted, and she drove the peg through his temple. Barak came by in pursuit, and Yael went out to meet him. Come, she said. Now, it's interesting, you know. She comes out to meet him and says, Come, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her. And there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite, the king before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against the Canaanites' kings until they destroyed him. So when I look at Deborah and Yael, their faith is seen in faithful service. Deborah was faithfully distributed, conveyed, the prophetic word to Barak. And she even went a further out. God didn't say you have to go with him. But because he asked her to go, she said, okay, I'll go with you. She goes with him, sees the victory, and that's the end of Deborah. We don't read about her here, except we read of her song in the next chapter. But she was faithful in her service to the Lord as was Yael, faithful to God's people and to God's plans and purposes. So faith is seen in understanding God's word, being determined and courageous to present its truth, even to the leaders among them. There's something else about them, I I won't go into it, but it's really quite interesting too, because what they initiated was a change, you might say, a further, fuller understanding of the law. Whatever the traditions were, they were now passé. Women were going to get their inheritance as rightly deserved. But faith is also seen in faithfulness, in being obedient to the calling and the service God has entrusted to us. And we see that with Deborah as a prophet, prophetess, and Yael as a member of the household of Israel, you might say. The last person I'd like to draw your attention to is found in the New Covenant Scriptures, in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul is on his journey, his second journey, to plant more congregations. His first trip, he went to Cyprus, and then he went up to Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. En route from Cyprus to Turkey, when he landed on the shores of Asia Minor, Mark, who's with him, Mark and Barnabas, John Mark, decides that he no longer wants to continue to travel, he wants to go back, so he leaves. On the second journey, a dispute arises between Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas says, I'm not taking John Mark with me. Barnabas says, well, it's his cousin. He says, we should take him with us. Paul says, no, I'm not doing it. And it says that the dispute got heated. It got intense. It got hot. 
So Barnabas decides to go with John Mark, and they go back to Cyprus to visit the congregations they planted on that island. Paul takes Silas, and he doesn't go to the sea. He stays on land. He's up north in what is today Syria. And he goes north, or I should say he goes west, into Asia Minor. And they revisit some of the congregations he and Barnabas had planted on their first journey. When they're finished visiting them, Paul decides, listen, let's go further into Asia Minor. But we're told that, we're not told how, but we're told that he was not permitted to go. When he tried to go back, he was not permitted. When he tried to go south, he was not permitted. Finally, he has a vision. The vision's interesting because he sees a man from Macedonia, the northern part of Greece today. And the man tells him, come over to Macedonia. We're in need of your service, in need of your ministry. And so Paul decides this is what God is leading them in. He takes some ships. He goes to Samothrace and he goes to uh, the, the finally lands in uh, Macedonia uh, at the port city, and he makes his way to Philippi. When he gets to Philippi, which is a Roman colony, everyone living there were immediately Roman citizens. Back in 43 BCE, before the common era, before the time of Messiah, one of the most important battles ever fought in the history of Europe was fought. Brutus and Cassius fought Octavius, who would later become Caesar Augustus, as we read of him in the New Covenant Scriptures. But Octavius and... And now my mind just went blank. It happens. And these men, Octavius... Oh, I wish I could remember. They destroy Cassius and Brutus. And as such this city becomes known for the first expansion of the Roman Empire, the establishment of the empire, and all citizens from here are rendered, or all inhabitants from here are rendered immediate citizens of Rome. But most of us don't remember that battle, or all the participants, obviously. But all of us who read the scripture remember Philippi is where Paul had served and sent this important letter. But when he gets there, what's really interesting, look at verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea. We sailed straight for Samothrace. The next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. That's why, because of that battle. And we stayed there for several days. On the Shabbat, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down, began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now that's what really is really interesting. The vision he had was of a man who said, come on over here because we need your service. But when he gets there, it's women that God brings Paul to. Don't you find it to be kind of interesting to just take note of? I don't think I've ever thought about that so much. It's women. And just like today, it's women who are in the prayer meeting. We're the men, you know? In most churches, I guess, across the country, maybe even in Messianic congregations, if we took a poll, I wouldn't be surprised if the majority of the people there are women, (laughs) even as Paul sees here in Philippi. (laughs) And one of the women who are there praying is a woman by the name of Lydia. 
Lydia came from Thyatira. Thyatira was in a district called Lydia. So maybe she was named after the district. But Thyatira was a leading ancient city known for its dyes. And she was a seller of dyes, particularly a purple dye. I had read that dyes from Thyatira, if put into the 21st century, could cost as much as four or $500 a pound. It was that extravagant. This was not for the general public. And it appears that Lydia was a salesperson. She was on business to Philippi, for she was a seller of these dyes from Thyatira, which is where she's from. So what was she doing in Philippi? It's the leading city in Macedonia. There are going to be a lot of wealthy people there, and she is selling this. She's a representative. She's a businesswoman that is conveying the purchase of this material. But she's there praying. Now notice what we read about her. One of those listening was Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. But notice, number one, she was a worshiper of God. doesn't mean that she was a believer in Messiah. It doesn't mean that she had a relationship, but she's not a pagan. Maybe she's a proselyte. Or like Cornelius, a God-fearer. She's one that is in touch with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For she's a worshiper of him. She's not in the temple somewhere. Not many Jews in Philippi, so there's no synagogue there. So the Jews gathered at the river. But on this occasion, the men weren't present. For whatever reason. And these women were praying. Notice it's on the Shabbat. And the men aren't there. But they are. And notice what it says. Paul shares with these women. He might have rationalized, wait a minute, my vision was of a man. There's no man here, this can't be the right place. But that's not how Paul thinks. He's a servant of God. He's ready to share the word. And when he shares the word, it says this, and this is so thrilling to me, the Lord opened her heart. I'm so glad that our response to the things of God is not solely dependent on us. For if it was, we would never respond. If it was, we who are dead and trespasses and sins would never respond to the things of God. It's the reason why when we do, our first response is thank you. Because we express our gratitude to the one who enabled us to see him for who he is. We pray that our eyes might be open like Paul's on the road to Damascus, seeking to persecute the believers, the Jewish believers in Damascus, but God opens his eyes. Left to himself, he was en route to do harm to God's people. But when God intervened and his eyes were opened, he became what he became to the glory of God. That's always the way it works. It's God who gets all the praise from beginning to end. And thus here, Paul is very clear, or, or Luke, who's writing, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now she is a believer. And when she and the members of her household were immersed, notice the very first thing she does. She says, I need to be immersed unto the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. 
Immersion was a Jewish thing, and she's saying, I need to be identified fully and be so identified with him that I would experience this immersion. I need to obey Messiah, who said, go into all the world and immerse them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to experience that. But it doesn't end there. As a consequence for what God had done in her heart, she does through her life, and she opens her home. Notice what she says. She invited us to her home. And if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. She must have been very wealthy. Because in order to put people up in their home, she had to have enough room. And given what we know about her, she was a woman of means. And she was ready to use those means for the benefit of others. Faith means understanding God's word and so understanding it, standing upon it and affirming it, even if it's to the leaders of the world. Faith means being faithful in our service, even if it means resistance. I'll go with you, I'll take you by the hand, but we're doing what God has called us to do and we will not renege upon it. And when the enemy comes in, we will identify with God's people and not with God's people's enemies, as in the case of Yael. And when it comes to the truth of God's word regarding the way of salvation, we will be like Lydia, who exercised her faith in trust in the truths that Paul was conveying, truths that spoke of the redemptive grace of Messiah who has come and given his life for us. And so here's the big question. Has God opened your heart to the truths of God's word? Has God opened your heart to what he has proclaimed? If he is, be a man or woman like Lydia and respond in faith. And be ready to open up your resources for the benefit of others. If God has spoken to your heart, seek to understand his word and do it. If God has spoken to your heart and entrusted you with spiritual gifts, talents, etc., use them faithfully for the glory of God. No matter how agonizing it may be at times. Barack, come on, man, just go. And so we need to be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength like Yael. And we need to be humbled, really kind of a crazy sort of combination of things. We need to be humbled to allow God to open our heart to him. And once he does, to express our openness to him by opening ourselves to others. On this Mother's Day, let's take our cue from these marvelous women who are women of faith and women of obedience. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day. As we reflect on these incredible women, and there are others in Scripture we could draw our attention to, the Esthers of Scripture, the Ruths of Scripture, the Marys of Scripture. There are all kinds of women in, in Scripture who reveal good things for us to emulate and to follow after. But these women are also really neat as well.
Help us, Father, by your Spirit to be like them. And help us thereby, Lord, to be pleasing in your sight. And so we pray these things in Messiah's name and for his glory and for his honor. We pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.